You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 49 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob is stuck in Amagansett. If you don't know where it is, you should look it up because it's really near the end of the world for us here on Long Island. Anyway, so... Greetings from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. Uh, Library Post podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to subscribe to uh, our Apple podcast, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to join our email subscription service from our webpage, librarypros.com. And think about leaving a review or telling a friend or colleague because word of mouth is how uh, people learn about uh, our podcast. And please check us out on, on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Today joining us is Nancy Evans. Nancy is the head of young adult de- of the head of the young adult department at the Levittown Public Library in Levittown, New York. That's if I could read. <laughs> Nancy runs a program at Levittown called Strong Girls School, which is a program to empower girls as they deal with gender issues. I'm sure with a bunch of other issues too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Nancy has also written a book based on her experiences entitled Cultivating Strong Girls. Library Programming That Builds Self-Esteem and Challenges Inequality. So thanks for joining us. This is fun. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Thanks for driving all the way out here. No problem. Okay. So we're going to speak with Nancy about Strong Girls School and about her experiences in the world of teen librarianship, which is one of the scariest places for me in the world. Uh, But first, let's get to know Nancy a little bit. Uh, So you're the head of the Young Adult Department at Levittown. Did you start out at Levittown when you became a librarian? No, I didn't. I actually started as a page in East Meadow. I was a staff accountant, and I had taken some time off to raise my kids, and I knew I didn't want to go back to staff accounting, which is incredibly dull. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) As dull as it sounds. Um, And I was in the library one day, and I saw that they had a sign-up for a page in the children's department, and I'd been considering what I might do next, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll apply for this job and see if I like the environment. And I knew within a week. (laughs) That's how it usually goes, right? Yeah, yeah, I I just knew. So um, next semester I enrolled in library school, and here we are. Where'd you go? I went to Queens. You went to Queens. Excellent. So um, what attracted you towards working towards teens? Because for me, I don't mind helping teens and working with them, but when you put enough of them together, you get outnumbered real quick. Yeah, they can definitely be scary. Um, I find the population so interesting. You know, they're in transition, so they still have a lot of the qualities of childhood, you know, a lot of the curiosity, the openness, but they're also formulating their own identity, their ideas about the world, and they have a unique perspective, and I feel like I learn so much from them. They're not jaded or cynical like adults are. So for me, it just always keeps things fresh, and I feel like it keeps me young. I've heard that, where people who work in teens say, oh, yeah, it keeps us fresh. It keeps us in tune with what's going on and and even up to date with some technology things and and things like that. I usually answer this by saying I have the mentality of a 12-year-old, but I just gave you a somewhat better answer than that. Hey, you know what? I'm not that far (laughs) off, so it's not so bad. And uh, 
Tell us why you say you can't be wishy-washy when you work with teens. Um, because people fear teens. So exactly. You, you just said that you find them terrifying as a population. You're not the only one. A Lots of staff are afraid of them, or they don't like them. Um, sometimes the patrons don't like them. So you have to be able to advocate for them wherever you need to. And also because um, they can be difficult to control, and they can walk all over you if you let them. So you've got to be ready for that. Oh, I'm sure. And it really... Um, I find it interesting whenever I go down there how um, I always have this, this idea in my head of the the, cir- the the lion tamer with the whip and the, the chair, you know, and uh, whenever I go down to our teen department, I, I'm always fascinated with how it's, and, and it's really silly to say that, you know, there's this model of a library that everybody thinks of that it's a quiet place and it's a place where um, you're not supposed to make any noise and everybody's supposed to be quiet and everybody's supposed to be studying and you go down to the teen department and it's like this controlled kind of chaos. So I think that that's part of the misnomer that most people have when they think about libraries and well, why would teens go there to play games and do these kinds of things. So I, I find that really, you know, it's interesting because it's, it's not just breaking the stereotype, it's smashing the stereotype about what libraries are. But what everybody forgets is, unlike children, you can reason with teens. When I walk into the children's department, it's just pure chaos. It's just little kids running around in circles and Legos flying and books everywhere. And, you know, at least with teens, you can sit down and have a conversation with them and give them reasons why they need to stop this behavior. Right. To each his own. (laughs) Right. And it's more than just controlling behavior. I mean, there's so many other things that the teen department does. I mean, whether it's instructional, whether it's unstructured uh, play or unstructured um, instruction, or just giving them a place to hang out. Yeah, that's really important to us, that we have a space where they can be and they can be themselves how they are. Right, exactly. Okay, well, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to get into what it's like working in the Teen YA department and about Strong Girl School and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back with Nancy Evans from the Levittown Public Library. It's our second Levittown uh, podcast, so that's kind of exciting. And I think Marianne Farrow says she wants us to come back, too. She has some other things she wants to talk about, so we're excited about that, too. We've grown a lot, so I'm sure there's a lot more to talk about now. Oh, yeah. So before we start talking about Strong Girl School, we wanted to um, congratulate you on being named Library Journal Mover and Shaker. Thank you. Um, You know, that's a really cool accomplishment because you're nominated by peers, um, so how did you feel when you, you found out you were you were named as a mover and shaker? Yeah, I was very excited and very honored, um, but primarily very grateful because you are nom- nominated by peers. And we're not at the point, I don't think, in this field where we're ready to nominate ourselves for this kind of an award. So you're dependent on somebody to recognize what you're doing, to, to take the time 
to mm-hmm. fill out the application and everything that goes along with it. And so I'm always aware that there are probably lots of people doing amazing work that aren't receiving this award just because somebody didn't nominate them. And I wish people would just, you know, notice what your colleagues are doing, acknowledge it, and then be willing to go to the next step and nominate because it brings all of us up. Well, isn't it interesting, too, in, in this profession, um, I'm not saying that there's a stereotype about what a librarian is, but in, they, they tend to be a little more introverted. And I think that lends itself to not thinking about, not necessarily because you don't care about your colleagues, but maybe you don't even know this exists, or maybe you think that, what's the point? Nobody's going to listen, and, you know, nobody, you know, I don't have a voice, or, or you know, just that whole introverted thing where they, they don't like to go outside of their comfort zone. Yeah, so that's exactly it. Um, and you at least should try you know, possibly the person won't win, but then there's next year and there's new people. And I think we should all be nominating somebody every year because undoubtedly we all know someone who's deserving. And we've interviewed a lot of movers and shakers on the podcast. And the one thing that I've noticed is that's like a common grain that runs through um, everybody we've talked to is there's like this lack of fear or lack of... Um, Worrying what people think. You know, there's this, I'm going to do it because this is right or this is something I believe in. And, you know, damn everybody who's going to shoot me down or, or be a naysayer. Um, and your program, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, does that as well. And I'm always, every year when the list comes out, I love going through it because these are people who are not shy and not afraid to challenge something, whether it's authority or whether it's a, a thought process or whether it's, the, the, the dirty words we always talk about on this podcast, the way always the things, I can't even say it now. That's the, always the way we've always done it, mm-hmm. which is like this, the dirtiest word you can say in library land. Because if you keep doing it the way it's always been done, we wouldn't even have web opacs. Right. So, you know, it's those people that are leaders, innovators, and it's always exciting to speak to them because you know you're going to get something really cool, new, refreshing, interesting, and it's not going to be... Well, the accession numbers on this record are, you know, you don't want to talk about, it's important, don't get me wrong, I'm not downplaying that, but you want to talk about things that are new and exciting, and every time we talk to a mover and shaker, we always get that vibe from somebody, and the same is true with you. Well, I had influences, as you'll hear. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Um, So... uh, in episode 10, uh, we did a roundtable discussion with teen librarians, uh, one of which uh, works downstairs here at Sachem. And, um, you know, we talked about what it's like, you know, to have a day in the life as a, a teen slash YA librarian. And it was an eye-opener for me because I'm an adult librarian, so I don't see that on a daily basis. Um, and some of the things that they spoke about, I had no idea were going on, um, you know, Although you started your passion for advocating while still in library school, what was the draw? We talked about it before, but tell us about that draw again with working with teams. I definitely have a pull towards the the population, as I said before. Um, Not that adult services and, and children's services aren't value, but I feel like this is a population where you really have an opportunity to make a difference. Um, and the feedback that I've gotten from the program that I run, apparently it has made a difference. And, you know, when I graduated from library school, I had this idea in my head that I would do great things. And it was unformed. 
I didn't know how I would. I knew I would work in youth services, and I thought, well, if you were around youth and books, great things were bound to happen. Then I found out that that's a lot harder than it sounds. But I think that I have an opportunity here with this population. I have a little bit of an edge, maybe, that the other populations don't because of exactly where they're at in that stage. You know, they're unformed in some sense. You know, they're still developing, and they are receptive to all sorts of new ideas and things, and they're interested in learning them, and they give me always things to think about. So I feel like they help me develop as a person as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really the draw. Um, it's just this sweet spot of a stage that they're at where you feel like you have so much opportunity with them. You know, in, in, when you were um, saying that, I remember, I think it was a, a video that I had seen uh, about self-esteem in girls where they were asking girls who were six, seven, eight, nine a series of questions and they were empowered and they didn't care and, and then they asked the same questions to a group of 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 17-year-olds, and the demeanor was completely different. It, it turned into self-doubt, um, self-deprecation, uh, this meekness, and um, I forget the exact point of what the video was other than to say what happens, you know, what, what happens when the gender role is, becomes conscious, and how does that gender role fit? Where with boys, it's a completely different mindset. The boys may get even more aggressive or more um, outgoing or more um, positive. Where girls have seemed to move backwards towards this, this self-doubt. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? So by that age, they've had a lot of exposure to media. Um, they've seen in movies, books, magazines, TV shows, portrayals of what women should look like, um, what their body type should be, what the beauty standard is. They have social media with, you know, endless selfie-taking and editing and a, kind of a warped sense of reality. And they know that it's fake, and yet they still aspire to that standard that they know is unattainable. And they've had a lot of societal norms. Um, most schools have a dress code that puts the onus on girls um, not to tempt or provoke boys rather than putting it on boys to behave appropriately no matter how the girls are dressing. And that was one of the first things that came up in my program is my school has a dress code and it's very unfair. I'm not allowed to wear tank tops. My shorts have to be a certain length. You know, if we go to prom, this is what the dress has to look like. And, you know, all the boys have is no drug slogans on the T-shirts, and that's not fair. And it's not. But they've had years of exposure to this stuff, and it wears them down. They start to change, you know, if they don't have another influence to counteract that. And a lot of times even the parents agree with these things because they're afraid. They don't want their girls to be raped, sexually harassed, assaulted. Or be different, just to be different. And it, it, that's always because I have two girls, and I see, I kind of see that happening um, a little bit. My older one marches to a beat of a different drama, so I'm not so worried. But um, it is interesting to see how it becomes like the girl group. They they become like a, a pack or a herd of the same exact thing. And um, that's actually a good transition into telling us about 
um, first of all, your your connection to Mary Kay Shelton, co-founder of Voya Magazine, and um, how she influenced you to advocate for teen girls. So tell us about that so then we can kind of slide into the whole program. So I had Mary Kay for four courses of my master's, which is a third of the degree. So she was very influential. But she would have been if I'd had her for one course because she's just a force. You know, <laughs> I'm she, sure. She is. She, she's a pioneer of um, teen services and teen librarianship and a very strong advocate. And one of the first things that she said to us in class was, this profession is too wishy-washy, exactly what you were saying earlier. And you people need to learn to stand up for yourselves. And there's nothing wrong with asking a patron to write you a letter of recommendation if you've given good service. And there's nothing wrong with self-promotion. And, you know, these ideas are very new, I think, to the profession, like you said. Yeah, definitely. And particularly to women, because um, we're told that, you know, you don't brag. Right, you have to be modest. You have to be modest. And, you know. It's a model from like the early. In the early nineteen, early twentieth century, late nineteenth yeah, century. Yeah, it's considered to be an unappealing quality. Um, but if you wait for somebody else to do it for you, it might not happen. And this is important stuff. This is your career that you're talking about. So she first planted that idea in my head that you know you're going to need to advocate for yourself professionally. And then of course, you know, she had a lot to say about advocating for teens because that's what she's all about. And I took it to heart. It makes a lot of sense, and it almost seems like librarians and teens kind of are in the same boat in a sense, you know, with that self-doubt, and and it is primarily a female-driven profession. And you were saying, as you were were describing um, all that stuff, I was thinking, like, words that you have to be in order to be a mover and shaker or be somebody that's going to be... Uh, groundbreaking or start new things and there are some words that don't really fit into the quote-unquote feminine uh, dialogue words like aggressive and persistent and because when you start using those words then other words start to come out that aren't so flattering or nice towards women because you're supposed to be quiet and and there's all these social um social faux pas or social i don't even know how you would describe it uh the way women are supposed to act versus, you know, the way you should act if you're a professional. And I think that's something that women struggle with because as you're a professional, regardless of the the career that you're in, you want to compete and you want to be, you know, considered for that promotion and all that other stuff. But yet your, your training, your unofficial training growing up was, oh, you have to be this way and you you shouldn't speak up and you shouldn't be too loud and you, you know, you should listen and not talk and, and all that other stuff. Yeah, and we know that in meetings, um, women are over-talked by men. Um, now it's kind of a joke. There's a lot of memes about it and mansplaining, but it is true. Um, you know, you have patients explaining to their female doctors the procedures. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and that's really annoying. Oh, um, sure. And you know, it's a struggle to be heard. Right. And it, it seems as though, and I'm just, I'm generalizing, but when there's a male-female interaction, and I can't say it for myself because I exist in library land and I see people as people, not as male or female. Um, but, you know, when you get the guys driving the big truck, big pickup trucks and that whole mentality, 
regardless of who they are. Like you said, even if it's a doctor, um, there's going to be that, okay, honey, sure, whatever. Even though it may be a cancer doctor that just gave this guy a diagnosis. That's really kind of sad. Yeah, we're not trying to man-hate here. We're just trying to say, you know, you have to look at what's going on. The men were socialized, too. They were socialized to speak up. They're, they're doing what they've been raised to do. We know that teachers call on boys twice as often as they call on girls. Right. So this has been going on for a very long time. Um, we know that by age six, girls are thinking of themselves as less intelligent than boys. It's sad. It's very sad. It really is. So tell me how, um, with all of these things that, that you learned from Mary Kay, how you came up with Strong Girl School and how it evolved over time became what it is today. Yeah, I had um, a writing group that was just coincidentally all girls. And I had brought in a Tumblr post by YA author Maureen Johnson one week, and it was on photoshopping in women's magazines. And I thought we were going to discuss her writing style, but it was the content that really interested the girls. And they just started to talk about all of the issues that they were experiencing around gender bias and inequality, self-esteem, beauty, body image. And I just sat back and I listened to them talk. They were so engaged and so passionate. And I thought, I have to do a program around this. And that's how it started. And that's how it was born. So how long have you been doing it now? I've been doing it since 2014. Wow. So there's a little bit of a story behind that because um, Maureen Johnson wrote that Tumblr post in 2012. And I contacted her immediately, and I said, I want to do a program, and can I use your Tumblr post? And she said, go for it. And I didn't actually go for it for two years because I was afraid. Oh, really? Yep. Because um, in some senses, it's a high-risk program. It's gender-specific, so it's, it's exclusionary. And I was worried that somebody in the community was going to complain. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about some sensitive issues, when we get into self-esteem and other issues like that, I thought, well, what if somebody comes to do the program and this person has really big emotional problems and I'm not a psychiatrist or a therapist, you know, I'm a librarian, how am I going to handle that? Then I thought, well, what if administration says I can't do it? I'm going to be really disappointed. I had so many what-ifs and that it took me two years of sitting on it. And then one day I said to myself, you know, how can you even be considering running a strong girls program when you're acting so wishy-washy yourself? Just go for it. And, you know, we talk about administration a lot on the podcast about if you have good administrators – who are willing to take the risks, good things will happen. I mean, we always talk about failing, too. And, you know, failing isn't a bad word. It's a good word because when you fail, it's not the end. It's only the beginning. And even if a program flops, it completely flops, instead of saying, well, crumple it up, throw it in the garbage, maybe you look at it and retool and find out the little parts that did work. But it seems like this program is just working. Yeah, I just regret that I didn't go for it sooner because, as it turned out, I did have a supportive administration, and the community didn't complain. And, you know, I haven't encountered girls who've had major emotional problems, but if I did, I would handle it the same way that it happens when we encounter them outside of a program like this. So I was creating all of these fears, and it didn't have to be. But I'm glad I did finally do it. Yeah, it it sounds like an incredible program. Um, tell us where it, where it's going now, um, and, and some of the things that are talked about, and, and does it usually 
do you usually chart it from point A to point B and it ends up at point D somewhere else? I have an outline that I try to follow, and there's definitely topics that I want to hit on, but each group is its own entity. The composition is always different there. You know, sometimes they lean a little towards younger, a little towards older, and so sometimes different issues are more important to each group. Middle school girls tend to be more concerned about fitting in, and high school girls usually are more concerned about the future. Um, they might be receiving uh, pressure from parents to go into a certain career. Um, they're not as worried about fitting in anymore because they've been through the rough spot already and they know that you can do it and come out of it okay. Um, it's interesting when I have a blend of both age groups because then I can use the older girls as co-facilitators. I'll give them some training and they can talk to the younger girls and they're still learning but they're also teaching and they really enjoy that so they're mentoring. So. Um, I don't know where it's going. I know that I run it every year and girls come and they like it and they get something out of it and so I keep doing it. How often do you run it? Uh, I run it once a year and I usually run it as a series of six to eight sessions and they're usually an hour and a half to two hours each and then usually at the end of the series the girls tell me that they want to continue coming and can they keep coming and we turn it into a club. <laughs> wow, that's really great. H have you had any input from the school district about it? I'm talking to the social workers. Um, I, one of the things that I was considering was maybe I should go over to um, the schools and run it in conjunction with the guidance counselors and the social workers because transportation is such an issue for us. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a pretty big and spread out district, and the kids can't necessarily get to us. You know, they're dependent on their parents. Um, it's not really a great public bus system, you know, for them. And so I thought, well, I could probably reach more girls if I went to where they are. Right. So that's definitely a possibility. I could see this, like like you said, working with guidance counselors and working with the school psychologists to turn this into something that could be a, a joint program. Yeah, I mean, they have a similar version of it at one of the middle schools, so I think they would be receptive to it. Tell us about some of the more interesting things that have come out of discussions with the kids. Like, has anything popped out of left field and said? You mean Ooh. like positive outcomes? Yeah, or? yeah, that kind of thing, or anything that 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 is a that is a positive that comes out of it from the, for the kids' perp for the kids' benefit. Yeah, um, in my very first group that I ever ran, I had a teenage girl who was in a relationship with a boy, and it wasn't a good one. Um, it was consensual, but she was being used, and she was very unhappy, and she wanted to be converted to a real girlfriend. And she would come every week, and she would talk about, you know, what was going on, and everybody would advise her, you, you need to end this relationship. It's not good. And I even developed a PowerPoint about, you know, what, what does a healthy relationship look like versus unhealthy, and I showed it to her. And everybody was getting really frustrated, and I thought, you know, I don't know if I should even allow her to speak about it anymore because she's not making any positive changes, and she's upsetting the other girls because she won't take their advice. And then one week she walked in, and as soon as I saw her, I knew something had changed. She typically had really timid body language. She would hunch over, and she was standing tall and proud and she had a huge smile on her face and she said I did it she said I ended up with him I blocked his number on my phone and I told him if he ever contacts me again I'm going to tell an adult and I feel great and we were like yes wow. that's a real positive outcome yeah it was amazing 
That's great. And then I had um, another older teen whose mom wanted her to be a nurse, and she didn't want to be a nurse. She wants to be a librarian. Rah, rah. That's great. Well, her mom didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) She hasn't been to the library, huh? And her mom was really putting the pressure on for her to become a nurse. And we talked about how she could have an open and honest conversation with her parents about, you know, what her goals were and she what she wanted in her life and, you know, make her mom see that it was her life to live. And her mom finally said, okay, I accept your choice. And so that, that was, you know, big for us too. Sure. I mean, you're affecting lives with this. Isn't, and that's, well, and that's what I hoped for too. Yeah, sure. Um, so with the program, uh, how many kids do you usually get in the program? So I've had anywhere from three to 14. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer a small group. Six to eight is ideal. It's easier to facilitate discussion, but I don't have the heart to turn anybody away, which is how I got 14 one year. <laughs> <laughs> and that was interesting, but we made it work. You know, sometimes I broke them off into smaller groups to work, and they just really like a lot of the girls that are drawn to the program are either currently being bullied, they've been bullied in the past, sometimes they don't have a lot of friends. They might not have a big support group, and they make friends within the group, and they're accepted, and it's safe, and they can talk about the things that matter to them, and it's really such a positive thing for them. So once it turns from a program into a club, how how long does this this club last for? I have to tell you that if I didn't put an ending date on it, it it would be year round. You know, they would just keep coming back. But you know, eventually we we get into well, you know, now we need to start doing school visits and you know outreach things at the school. And now we're heading into summer and summer reading and all the chaos, and we don't have meeting space. So mm-hmm. I do have to limit it. Um, but I'm flattered that they want to keep coming back and, and that they, they probably like it enough. meet it on their own too, right? What they do sometimes is they'll exchange phone numbers, they'll start developing a group chat, they've made new friendships, and that's really gratifying too, especially if they tell me that they didn't really have any friends when they started out. And do you see that it transcends the the normal cliques of middle school and high school? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, we're crossing, you know, grade boundaries. We've we've got different types that are interacting. So I think that's a great thing, too. Absolutely. It's breaking down those barriers, those imaginary social teenage barriers. Because a lot of times the ones that are that are like the most popular ones, they don't see the other kids. It's not necessarily they don't like them, they just don't see them. And then the ones that are aspiring to be those are never seen. And then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if once they do experience each other, then it, it kind of breaks down that imaginary wall, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely um, not every girl who comes into the program is unpopular. You know, there's varying degrees, and it absolutely does. You know, they start seeing what it's like for that girl that doesn't have any friends, and they start to think, wow, you know, maybe I should invite somebody to eat lunch with me or, you know, pay attention to this person. That is such a great program. Thank you must you. be so excited when you when you do it, right? Yeah, it is very exciting for me. Um, the The outcomes were better than I ever anticipated that they would be. Mm-hmm. So, and do you get feedback from parents too? Yes, I definitely get feedback from parents. Hopefully, it's yeah. mostly good, right? Oh yeah, I, okay. I don't. 
Um, I don't ever get negative feedback on the program. Now, having said that, I'll probably yeah, we'll, get we'll knock on this console, time. which is like I think it's real wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, they're very grateful that the program exists and that there's a place for their daughter to come and you know meet other kids and talk. The only time that somebody was unhappy was I had a mom that wanted to do the program with her daughter, and I said, oh, "Yeah, yeah no. we, we can't do that." I said, "You know, not only will you inhibit your daughter from talking about the things that she wants to talk about, you'll inhibit everybody else." And she wasn't really happy. With that but she went away and we did our thing so let me ask you this and we're going off-road a little bit now which is kind of fun um have you thought of somehow getting boys in the mix somehow yeah um because there there is that male point of view that maybe you, you get a guy that maybe can shed some light on on what the guys are thinking or could be possibly thinking um, i've thought about it quite a bit because boys have their own set of issues and expectations and society tells them how they think men should be the problem that i have is i'm not a guy and for authenticity's sake you know I run my program. I'm not saying to the girls, I, I can imagine how that feels. I'm saying to them, I know how that feels. And that makes me authentic. And I want a complimentary program for the boys to have the same authenticity. I do have a male librarian, and we have discussed it. And what we're kind of stuck on is how are we going to get them to come in? That's the big issue, yeah. You know, what boy is going to look in the newsletter and say, oh, great. A program for boys where I could talk about the expectations for me and my feelings. And, yeah. <laughs> and so what we're playing with is, well, what if we did a book discussion for boys and maybe the book had some issues about, you know, boys in society. And then maybe we could kind of segue it, ease it into this kind of program from there. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're looking towards. Well, this is just the next natural progression. And I'm thinking... Uh, have you addressed this with um, any any kids that are LGBT? Well, um, we are. Because that's, I, a, that's I, a different kind of animal, you know, versus the, the, the regular gender roles that are out there. So um, I'm very happy to say that at Levittown we have um, the first Genders and Sexuality Alliance Club of any of the public libraries in Long Island. Oh, that's great. It is great. Um, We just started it not too long ago, and I can definitely see in the future overlap between the groups, but that club is just starting for us. We're just getting it off the ground, but we, we definitely have kids attending. And that's really a good thing because you talk about the safe space and you talk about mom not want you know not keeping you know not having mom come to this. Can you imagine? Could you imagine somebody if there is a kid that that is dealing with this, and they almost have to tell their parents they're going for a different type of program than the program they're going for. So I can. This just seems like a natural evolution. So one of my participants is actually, um, well, she's aged out. She's in college now, but um, she's trans. And a few people at the library, staff members, said, why are you allowing her in your strong girls program if she identifies as a boy? And I said, because she's still in the body of a girl. And that's a whole other set of problems that goes Mm -hmm. along with it. And people are still treating her as a girl. Right. But I would also allow a boy who identifies as a girl into the program. You know, whoever's going to get something out of this program, it's going to speak to them as welcome to come. And that makes a lot of sense. So tell us how this transitioned into a book. 
<laughs> as she yeah, looks up at the sky that, like, oh, that boy. That was interesting. Um, I presented at PLA, and there was an acquisitions editor in my audience from ABC Clio. Okay. And she came up to me afterwards, and she gave me her card. And I didn't think all that much of it. Um, and then she followed through by contacting me, and she said, have you ever considered writing a book? And I said, a book? <laughs> and she I said, know the feeling. <laughs> yes, about your program. And I said, well, I've written articles. And she said, well, think about it. And she said, you know, we have a submission process. And I'll send you the information and let me know what you think. So I thought about it. And I said, well, it would probably be like writing a bunch of articles and then connecting them all together. And that sounds doable to me. So, okay. So I contacted her and I said, okay, I'm ready to move forward with it. And we went through the submission process and there's levels to it. You know, if it passes the first tier, it goes on to the second tier. And I kept thinking, well, somebody's going to reject it at some point. I'm not actually going to have to do this. And then one day I got a phone call and she said, we're in, you're writing a book. And I was like, oh, (laughs) oh boy. Oh, I can imagine that feeling. Yeah. And the first thing that I found out was, you know, I sat down and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I looked at the word count and I said, oh, no, I'm in really deep. I didn't even scratch the surface. How am I going to actually do this thing? And guess what? It's not like writing a series of articles and connecting them together. So I had to ask for a few extensions while I figured it all out. But I did actually figure it out. So it was a big accomplishment for me. But if... I, I really didn't understand what I was getting into. I was, yeah, yeah. I've heard <laughs> friends of mine that have written, and they're like, "You have no idea." I had no idea. Yeah, I really didn't. And at that time, I was the president of the Nassau County Library Association. Oh boy! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that when I said yes. But I said, "Well, how often do people offer me a book contract? You right. know, am I going to say no?" But then you can't flake on the presidency in front of 800 members and all your colleagues. So I said, well, I'll just have to make it work. And you did. Yeah, I never made dinner for an entire year. My kids (laughs) will be very quick to tell you that. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they're our biggest critics, right? Yeah, and because their dad can't cook. So they were like, oh, Oh, wow. Are you ever going to make dinner? (laughs) So what do you see as the future for the program? I I, I mean, we talked LBGT and all that other stuff. But do you see that maybe it evolves a little bit? further can it evolve further that's even a bigger question you know what i wish for the program is that we didn't need it right i wish that the culture would change that the political climate would change and that in a couple years people will be laughing that i ever even had to have this program in the first place right and i i don't know how likely that is um i know that the change starts with with individuals um the girls have to believe that they're entitled to these things first before they can happen for them and that's the first step you know we have to acknowledge that this is the society we live in these are the challenges that you face it doesn't mean that you can't overcome them but we can't be so naive as to pretend that they don't exist it's not fair to them and we have to give them the tools that they need to face them and then hope that things do start to change I do feel somewhat encouraged. Well, I think it's confidence. A lot of, a lot of this is the confidence because once you have the confidence, everything kind of falls into line after that. But you have to be brave, I think, is what I'm getting at. You know, you have to not subscribe to, the, to the, what the gender rules are 
and um, you know just go for it. I it's, mean, it's part of it. It's not enough. Um, you know, we have to look at rape culture. Right. We have to look at the music that we listen to, the jokes that are made, the images that we see that basically says that violence against women is okay. And we have to say, no, that's not okay. You know, we have to look at violence against women. You know, women suffer from domestic violence in much bigger numbers than men do. We have to look at rapes on college campuses. You know, the girls are not safe, and that's not acceptable. Right. And, you know, we have to stand up against that. We have to look at the wage gap. Why does it still exist? And at, if it continues to close at the rate that it's been closing, we're going to wait another 50 years. That's insane it for is doing insane. the same work. Absolutely. And, you know, we can't pretend it's not there. You know, we know now that women are educated in numbers greater than men, but it doesn't correspond to advancement. It just means that we have more educated women stuck in more low-paying jobs. And that's tragic. Absolutely. Especially when you think of the potential of the um, the knowledge base that's out there, you know, women tend to think less emotionally than men, and um, the things that women can accomplish if they, you know, if they weren't dealing with this baggage of of these these gender uh, assumptions, uh, I think the world would be a better place for it. Yeah, we have to look at our maternity leave policies, which are disgraceful. Mm-hmm. Compared Child to Europe, care. yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, all of these things are gender-related. Mm-hmm. And they're not good for society as a whole, and people have to start to realize that. It hurts all of us. That's right. It's, it's a sad state of affairs, and hopefully we can move the needle a little bit. And your program is one step in that direction, Yeah, definitely. we have to at least try. Right. Because you have to try. Like we said earlier, you have to try and you have to push. Because without that, then we're all just doing the same thing over and over again. And, you know, first of all, that's not fun. (laughs) Second of all, you know, you need to make things right. And you're doing that with this program. It's a great program. I try. (laughs) Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, we are going to ask Nancy Howard top 10 list of questions or what we like to call the 032 list which is a Dewey number for top 10 lists and we always have to give thanks to Melanie Cardone from the Longer Public Library for giving us a name for this list of questions and we'll be right back And we are back with Nancy Evans from the Longwood Pub. Not the Longwood, sorry. Whoops. That's okay. <laughs> from the Levittown, the other LPL, the Levittown Public Library. And she's about to be our next participant in the 
032 list. So the questions in our list are inspired by uh, an article that we read in Literary Hub, which is an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. And you can see their work by visiting their website, lithub.com. Uh, take a look at their website because they do a great job of educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. I said world twice. Good job, Chris. Okay, so thank you, Literary Hub. So are you ready for the first question? I think so. Okay. What did you want to be when you were a child? Uh, anything but a librarian. I wanted to be an archaeologist. Uh, I wanted to be a model, interestingly. I wanted to be a teacher. That's really cool. So your first memory of a library, what was it, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, the library was several miles away, and there was no parking lot, and, you know, it was on a congested street, Northern Boulevard, in Douglaston, so it was really hard for us to go to the public library. So it was really my school library that was influential for me. I had a wonderful school librarian. I was a library helper. You know, I lived there. That's why it's interesting to me that it never occurred to me to become a librarian. <laughs> Even though it was almost ingrained in you, right? I don't know why. That's pretty funny. Well, I, you know what? I think it's probably because of our influence of our parents. And we're always second-career people. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when did you decide to work in a library? And if it wasn't your first career path, like we were just saying, mm-hmm. um, uh, what was your first career path? We kind of talked about it before. Yeah, but so as I it. said, I was a staff accountant, um, and it was very repetitive. You know, you're just crunching the numbers all the time, same thing every month, and always a deadline. And there was um, not a lot of interaction I mean, there was interaction between uh, co-workers, but not with the public. You know, we, we never saw people outside of where we worked. And no creative outlet whatsoever. And I'm a creative person. So when I took my break to have my kids, I knew it was something that I didn't want to go back to. And I was thinking about guidance counseling, um, maybe school social work. And then, like I said, I saw that page sign in the East Meadow Library, and it was, that was it from there. That's the best. I love that story. (laughs) Okay, here's one of our favorite questions. Who's your favorite fictional librarian? Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed to say this because she's crazy, but Tammy from Parks and Rec. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We've had had that a couple of times. Um, I'm a huge fan of that show, and I just think she's a really funny character. So what would you be doing if you weren't working in a library? I think I would be a social psychologist because I find that whole field fascinating, why people behave the way that they do. So um, what's your favorite section of the library? Now, originally this question was fiction, nonfiction, mm-hmm. history, biographies. But because of the way libraries have transformed in the last five or six years, it can mean anything. It can mean the cafe. It can mean the makerspace. It can mean the team department. It can mean the anime section. It can mean – well, go ahead. You can just tell yeah, us. I can so go on forever. For me, it's definitely our makerspace, the innovation station, because it's um, basically you're getting paid to play. And you've got all the fun stuff in there. And you can say, well, I need to go down and learn the new robots and, you know, play with them for a while. And, yep, that's work-related. <laughs> sure. That's great for outreach, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and you, like I said, you know, you have the creative outlet that you can use. So I think it's amazing that we have them now and just so much fun. And, you know, I have to give credit where credit's due. When we were building, we were thinking of building our makerspace first place we went to was Levittown, and, and your director and assistant director were so nice to us and, mm-hmm. and let us in and showed us 
everything, even like the secret little spaces where like the, the fire panel was, mm-hmm. and all this other cool stuff in the kitchen. And I still obsess about the sink, the big monster sink. My friends laugh at me because I obsess about that one day. I want to get a sink like that. Anyway, <laughs> if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library or maybe your teen department? What I would add is a library bus because, as I told you before, it's a very spread out district. And, you know, we have a lot of teens, and I'm sure maybe even adults, who'd like to come that just can't get there. And it's also right off Hempstead Turnpike. And we, we've got a lot of people who live on the opposite side of the turnpike, and crossing the turnpike is, is really risky. There have been several deaths. And I'm not comfortable with kids walking across that turnpike to get to the library. So I would love it if we had a bus that could pick up and drop off everybody who wants to be at the library. That would be a great idea. And innovative, too. Because, I mean, I've heard of, you know, bookmobiles and, you know, all these other things. But actually have, like, a set route Mm -hmm. and have them come pick up and drop off. That would be great. Well, I mean, mine's even, you said, you know, whatever you wanted. So mine's even on demand, you know. Like oh, you so don't you even make, have to, yeah. You request you, a pickup? You can up. just, yeah, maybe, you know, on an app on your phone say, hey, can you pick me up in 10 minutes <laughs> to come to the library? Library Uber? <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Library Uber. That's what I want. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So what do you love about your library? What I love about the library is that I have a supportive administration that doesn't shy away from what some people might perceive as high-risk programs. I do the Strong Girls program, and I do it without issue and with support. I've met many librarians who told me I would never be allowed to run a program like that, and that makes me feel really Don't bad. Don't you love those people? It, it just makes me feel so bad and sad that it's not an option for them. And the Genders and Sexualities Alliance also that we have, you know, being that we are the first public library to be offering that. And there is a level of risk. What we were worried about was the safety of the actual kids who might come to the program. Right. You know, my director decided we weren't going to shy away. If we were going to do this thing, it's going to appear in the newsletter. We're not going to do it on the down low. And, you know, we're going to put it out there. And so far, so good. And I'm, I'm so glad that they're so supportive of these things and that I can move forward with them. That is so great. Okay, so we like this question because it's fun. <laughs> What's the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? Not necessarily the worst thing because we do not have an explicit rating on iTunes. So something that was, the, like you said, wow, that's so weird. Something that so sticks with you. I'm sure that, like many of your other guests, Uh, They also had to narrow it down because I had multiple weird. But the one that always sticks out in my head is the time a group of people came in with a crystal ball and they wanted to do a seance in the reference area. That was weird. Yeah. Ouija board and all that other (laughs) stuff. They, 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 you know, I don't know why they felt that the library was conducive to these spirits coming to the seance, but that's what they wanted to do. So, yeah. Did did they get anybody? Uh, actually, I think somebody may have stopped them from doing it because yeah. we, we had a different sort of configuration in the library at the time. We didn't really have, like, separate quiet areas. and Yeah. I've heard that at other libraries, too, where they, they blocked it from happening because it's a little weird, creepy, not necessarily Halloween. Yeah, a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so who's your favorite regular patron? Yeah, this is a tough one, too, because I have so many. Yeah, because um, of the teens, yeah. right? 
But I have a teen patron who is just the most amazing kid. He's very, very bright, um, very science-oriented, but he's also just a good, personable kid. He helps out a lot at programs. He's got a wicked sense of humor. And he just recently, um, we had a community service program where the teens were writing uh, letters to seniors to become pen pals, hopefully, in the future. And his letter was just hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's just all around so much fun. Um, And everybody that read the letter in my department said, you should save this because he's going to be president one day. And we can all say we knew him when. And I said, I really do believe that. Like, he's going places. That's really cool. That's yeah. When when you find a kid like that, it must be something special. Yeah. Well, I, and he's not my only one, and that that's the blessing of it. I mean, we we joked around about crowd control and stuff earlier, but really, I'm very lucky. Most of the kids who come to the library are there because they want to be there, and yeah, they can get a little you know rambunctious and out of hand sometimes, but they're good kids. They, you know, they have a lot to offer to to society. You know. And, mm-hmm. It's a privilege to know them and to watch their growth, you know. He's going into 10th grade now. He came into my department in the 6th, and it's just so interesting to see how he's developed. And do they come back after they age out, too? Yeah, they do. They they come back and they visit, and sometimes they write these amazing notes that say that, you know, you were some kind of a positive influence on them, and, you know, I get all teared up. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. That is so great. So our last question. What are people without library cards missing out on? Everything. Everything. I mean, I just, how can you not? Exactly. You know, it opens up a whole nother world. And now more than ever, you know, we're changing how we think about the public library all the time and adding services and features that we never had before. So it's not that you just can't take out a book or a DVD. You're missing out on so much more than that. Absolutely. It's one of those things now where um, I always tell the story where, you know, you, you get the grouchy old man who comes in and goes, since when did libraries start entertaining people? Well, have you looked at the fiction collection? <laughs> you know, we've been entertaining people for a very long time. It's just that we're shifting our focus a little bit more. Uh, so, you know, and it's always fun when you get that kind of person because you kind of catch them a little bit. Um, but. Some people say libraries are fighting for their survival. I don't think that's the case at all. I think libraries are thriving and libraries are doing a reinvention that's making them more valuable. Yeah, as long as you continue to adapt, I think you're fine. And I mean, museum passes, empire passes, the ability to learn foreign languages. It's almost limitless at this point, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So really, you are missing out on everything. If anybody who's listening doesn't have a library card, you have to go get one right away. Yeah. Don't walk. Don't walk. Just run. Kind of tend to think that everybody that's listening does have a they library card. They probably do. Yeah. <laughs> they probably do. But tell your friends. Yeah, definitely. Because there's so much that we offer. And um, it's just sad that the, the public in general just doesn't realize it. No, but that's on us. If they don't know, it's because we haven't made them aware. So we have to work harder and make sure that we get the word out and that Public they are aware. Yeah. You know, it, it's not for them to figure out what we have to offer. It's for us to tell them. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming thank on. You. Is there anything you want to tell people about? You, you have a website, or you want to send the kids, or send people to look at Levittown's website, or? Well, I mean, or they um, want to get in contact with you. Or? Yeah. 
Um, you know, I'm easy to reach. You can just call me at the library or email me. Um, my email address is nevans at levittownpl.org. I don't have a website because I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll put all this stuff on the page. For I it. would love for you to read my book. I'm not saying you have to buy it. But yep, and we'll put a nice link to that. <laughs> we'll put a link to Amazon. Um, uh, and I'm always too. happy to answer any questions about the program. And definitely, if you're in the area, you should absolutely stop by the library. We do have a really fun maker space, and it, it is a nice library. It's a it's great, great library. Great place to hang out. Absolutely. Yeah, they've just added an eatery and additional quiet study area, and so we're evolving all the time. That's great. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. So that's all the time we have for this edition. And uh, if you have any questions or comments on our show, don't forget to drop us a line at the contact us section of our website, thelibrarypros.com. And we'll uh, have links and photos from this episode on the site along with all the contact information. Uh, so visit us on Twitter at, at thelibrarypros, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Opinions are those of Chris and Bob and not the Sage Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves. Kristen Christofaro, and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.